We're looking at the subject twice born, and we have to begin by defining our terms. You'll notice that in your bulletin outline. The dilemma of language is such that we Christians sometimes use terminology which is confusing to the non-believer. Most people know what it means to be born into this world. But they have problems with the biblical terminology in verse 1. Born of God. Born of God. I don't think we should be surprised by this. Christianity always struggles to convey spiritual truth to unspiritual people. Paul alerts us to the fact that this will not be easy because, as he says, the man without the Spirit, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the man without the Holy Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. And again, that word spiritually is referring to the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Now this verse addresses willful stubbornness. Does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. That's willfulness. But it also addresses incapacity. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually understood or discerned. And he doesn't have the spirit. Now for us, this means that it will be somewhat difficult to express, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13, to express spiritual truths using spiritual words. That's our dilemma. It also means that we are called to compassion because unbelievers can't help themselves. They cannot understand spiritual things. This is a blindness from the evil one. So we're to have a merciful understanding towards such people. Now notice, notice here. We do not give up our terminology. We do not give up trying to explain its meaning. We simply become aware of the two worlds in which we live, the physical and the spiritual, and we recognize that for most people of the world, they think of life in one dimension, and that is the here and the now. You think the person on the street out there is thinking about Spiritual realities? Are they thinking about heaven? Are they thinking about hell? No. Maybe when they're dying. Well, then they get real sober. We're thinking about these things and trying to relate them to those that don't understand. For example, did you know that the Bible speaks about two deaths? A first death. That sounds a little odd, doesn't it? A first death, but also a second death. 
The other week we talked about the reality of hell as part of the promises of God's judgment, which the Old Testament and the New Testament prophets refer to. But hell is not the end all, even for the wicked. John, our author, describes a final judgment in these terms. Let me read it for you. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, or hell, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is, John says, the second death. Revelation 20, verse 13 and 14. So here is a text which tells us that there's something on the horizon more fearful than hell. There's actually an end to hell and the beginning of something worse. At the resurrection of the last day, John says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, Hades is the place of the dead. Death and, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, I'm reading scripture, is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 12 and following. Jude, verse 12, talks about the false teachers who were spreading their pernicious heresy among the brethren. And he says it this way, These men are blemishes at your feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They're, they're even at the Lord's table. He's saying you'll find them there. He goes on, Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, <laughs> blown along by the wind. They're autumn trees, but they're without fruit. They're uprooted twice dead. Hmm. What do we think about autumn? Well, autumn is the time of year when one expects fruit on fruit trees, right? Spring is budding time, summer is maturing time, but autumn is harvest time. But with these false teachers, there's no fruit whatsoever of a godly nature. Instead, they are twice dead, dead in trespasses and sins, dead in their apostasy from faith in God. So for them, Jude says, the blackest darkness has been reserved forever, verse 13. This is the second death from which there is no recovery. Now, just as there are two deaths, birth with a sin nature, or being dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1, and then the second death, the lake of fire, for those showing no signs of repentance and true faith in Christ, so there are two births. That which comes naturally and that which is Supernatural. 
Natural birth is what we all anticipate at the completion of a pregnancy. Jesus taught a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. John 16, verse 21. This is natural birth. We all experience it. But there's also a spiritual birth, which occurs in the soul realm as surely as physical birth, birth occurs in the natural realm. This was explained by Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a religious teacher in Israel. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he, he, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of, the wa born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, verses 3 through 8. Now here are some salient points relevant to our study. Jesus introduced Nicodemus to a birth experience of which he was ignorant. Born again. Actually, the Greek term, born from above which is very precious when you think about it. Now Nicodemus at first did not understand the concept. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. John 3 verse 4. So it's obvious that he is thinking of the only birth he knows about, which is physical birth. Now notice, however, Jesus does not give up his terminology. Instead, he comes back with a stronger statement. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Translation. Nicodemus, you're thinking only of physical birth, and there, and there is that. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But you must learn that there is also a spiritual birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And by physical or fleshly birth, we all enter the material world. But no one enters the kingdom of God, the heavenly realm, unless they're born from above. Now, if we're doing the math correctly, this adds up to two births, a fleshly and a spiritual, a physical and a heavenly from above. The first is important for physical life. 
The second is important if you expect to live with God on his plane. Now the implication of these truths is this. Everyone alive experiences physical birth. But not everyone experiences spiritual birth. Fleshly birth is an automatic biological process resulting from conception. But spiritual birth has God the Spirit as the one who implants spiritual life in a person's soul. And Jesus says, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Adam and Eve were given the ability to procreate, and they were issued this mandate from God. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Genesis 1 verse 28. Every couple inherits this procreative ability, barring any unforeseen physical anomalies. But no human being, no pastor, no Bible teacher, no Christian parent, no seminary professor, no evangelist has the ability to reproduce a spiritual child bearing the nature of God. No, only God can conceive the spiritual. And this prerogative is solely up to God's will and his good pleasure mixed with his almighty power. Well, that brings us then to this concept of being born of God. How does this occur? Well, John tells us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, which is what the word Christ means, everyone who believes that Jesus is the anointed one of God, is born of God. Hmm. It sounds like Jesus is the key. It sounds like God wants Jesus to be the key. Has ordained that Jesus be the key. Now you know this is going to this is going to bring about a lot of changes in our thinking. The expanded commentary on this is found in verse 7 and following. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. I'm still reading scripture. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the Son, has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 7 through 13. He's not talking about physical life here. Life, 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 life. He's talking about eternal life. And if you have the Son, you have eternal life. Clearly, we are informed that it is God who gives us eternal life and that this eternal life is in his Son. So much so that verse 12 says, He who has the Son has, and the idea, has this spiritual life. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have this spiritual life. Put it simply this way, no Jesus, no spiritual life. No Jesus, no eternal life. But even more vital, no gift from God in His Son, then there's no heaven to come for you or me or anybody. This spiritual birth comes from God. I want you to notice the role of saving faith here. Notice how many times John references believing. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the anointed of God is born of God. Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 10, anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, six times in five verses, John talks about believe, 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 or he sometimes uses the word faith. No one would deny the role of saving faith in the spiritual birth which comes from God. But how does faith do its work? Where does it kind of fit in? The biblically based formula we usually hear is this. Sinners are saved by grace through faith alone. The reformers used a number of sola statements. Don't let that confuse you. That just Latin. That's all theology was done in that in those days. They used these sola statements to distinguish themselves from all salvations employing human works as the means of being saved. They were fighting against a work salvation, which was very much part of the Roman church. So, they came up with sola scripture. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone 
This affirms the biblical doctrine that the Bible alone is the sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. Martin Luther so eloquently stated it when he refused to recant his teachings. You know, they, they brought him before a council and they said, you've got to be willing to give up what you've been teaching. And if you're willing to give up what you're teaching, then okay, you'll, you'll be under our, our uh, thanks and mercy again. You can remain in the church. Here was his answer. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe god help me amen wouldn't you like to have been so bold and to be so bold standing on the scriptures but he did and this was revolutionary this was not heard of in his day i'm not saying he's the only person but I'm saying the general teaching of the church was not this. Secondly, sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. And that affirmed the biblical doctrine that salvation is by God's grace alone and that we are rescued from his wrath by his grace. God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but it is the soul efficient cause of salvation. This grace is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. Praise His name. It doesn't happen with everybody. It's by God's grace. Thirdly, sola fide, salvation by faith alone. And that affirmed the biblical doctrine that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's by faith in Christ that his righteousness is credited to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. Number four, solus Christus, in Christ alone. The campers have a song they sing at uh, Lael entitled In Christ Alone. It's wonderful. This affirms the biblical doctrine that salvation is found in Christ alone and that his sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are all sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to God the Father. It is not Christ plus my good works. It is Christ alone. It isn't Christ plus my prayers, plus my penance, plus my almsgiving. It is none of those things. It is Christ and Christ alone. And the reformer said, we better say that. We better put that down in writing. Yeah, we'll call it solus Christus. Christ alone. 
And then finally, number five, sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. This affirms the biblical doctrine that salvation is of God. It has been accomplished by God for his glory alone. It affirms that as Christians we must glorify God always and must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God alone. God doesn't save you so that you can pat yourself on the back and say, see what a good boy am I. He saves people that we might praise Him, glorify Him. Now how this works out on a practical level is taught by Paul in Romans 10, verse 13 and following. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says Paul. How then, how then, can they call on the one they have not believed in? It's a logical question. He goes on, how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? You see the impetus for mission here, for evangelism here? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Well, of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Faith in what God says about his son begins with hearing some things about God's son. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Preachers of the gospel are sent out with the message. Isaiah was commissioned by God to preach to Israel. John calls it, verse 9 of our text, the testimony of God which he has given about his son. I'm so thankful that God didn't leave us in the dark. He could have. We could just die in trespasses and sins with no light. Paul points out that hearing the message is essential to faith. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? There's a calling on Christ to save them, but that is never going to happen in a vacuum. People have to hear about Jesus. They have to hear about his saving work before they will call and believe. And then, with all of that said, faith in the Jesus of the message is not always a given. Because Isaiah said to God, Who has believed our message? 
And he says that with due consideration to an affirmative answer to the question, did they not hear? Answer, of course they did hear. So something else is in play here. Hearing the message does not automatically draw a person out of their skepticism and cause them to commit to Jesus. I don't know about you. I can speak my own salvation experience. I was a bratty kid raised in a Christian home. And I raised my fist against God and his Savior multiple, multiple, multiple times before the Spirit of God called me to Christ. And I heard hundreds of gospel preaching sermons. So I say again, hearing the message does not automatically draw a person out of their skepticism and cause them to commit to Christ. That being said, Paul assures us, here it is, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. We're told the method and we're told the message. Preaching and the word of Christ. You know that today in many churches throughout America, they're preaching. They are. It's not the word of Christ. They're preaching good works. They're preaching everybody's okay. They're preaching the things that indicate there's no hell to come. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The indication here is that faith that believes in Christ is not internal nor innate. It is external and supernatural. It is comes to people upon whom the Spirit blows life as the breath of God. The faith to believe God when he speaks, as well as the spiritual life, which fosters such faith in the testimony of God about his Son, are both God's gifts in creating believers. And this is why John affirms, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 1. Verse 6, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. People born of God are products of the Holy Spirit, granting them spiritual rebirth or life, a new and godly nature, and the faith to lay hold of Jesus as Savior and Lord. No one is ever saved without believing that Jesus and Jesus alone is salvation. John puts it this way, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And do you know that that excludes every religion in the world? Except Christianity, which is really a way of life and not simply 
a religion. That brings us then thirdly to the evidence of spiritual birth. Verse 1, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Wow, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Let me say it. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Here is this reoccurring theme in John, which we've seen many, many times. Most recently in our last study, chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, well, I love God, and yet hates his brother, hmm, is a liar. Verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And now we're told that everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This text is slightly different in that it gives the rationale for why we are to love each other, which is this. We all have the same spiritual father. We are all brothers and sisters, therefore. We are all in the same spiritual family. We all came to be in God's family the same way, through grace. And so none of us are any better than the other. There is no elevated status. There is no preference. We all live in a world which is hostile to us. Verse 4 talks about overcoming the world. We all have Jesus as Savior. We're all destined for eternal life, verse 12, through him. All, 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 all. No exceptions. Notice also something else here, verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. John likes to use chain thoughts as he writes. He makes one statement. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. And then he immediately adds another link to the chain. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. One thing leads to the other, and every successive link in the chain acts to confirm the and strength and solidarity of the whole. Observe in verse 2 that John speaks of more than just love for the brethren. He speaks of loving God and carrying out his commands, whatever those commands might be. Do you know that Christ is a king? He's a king. Well, a king rules over a people. And a kingdom is governed by laws. And if the people under that rule disobey the laws, they are viewed as rebels and insurrectionists. God, however, makes it more personal than that of a king and a subject. The personal is this. It's father. 
and children. Whoa. Because verse 3 says his commands are not burdensome. I love my dad. Didn't always agree with him. <laughs> Boy, did he have a rule book. Was the Bible. But he had other, you know, he had the household rules. We kept the household rules as kids because we loved dad. Not necessarily loving the rules, you know. Go make your bed. Go mow the grass. Take out the trash. You're not going out to play football until you get your lessons done. Da-da, da-da. And the rule book just kept grinding them out. But we loved dad. So his rule book was not burdensome. Once in a while, if the grass was left a week too long, and we're just getting back from our vacation, so she used to see my grass. <laughs> but once in a while then, Dad would come out with a second mower and help us get the grass back to where it needed to be. Some of you may be weary and well-doing, but you should know that obedience proves sonship. Disobedience means you're not a child at all. You see, you cannot invent, invent your own allegiance to Christ. He has rules to live by. He has commands on how to function within the spiritual family. So if you live outside those boundaries, the world will swallow you up. And you will not overcome the world. It's in Christ that we overcome the world. Now in closing, let me suggest two lessons for the heart. Number one, since saving faith comes, by hearing the word of Christ, you should make every effort to have your unsafe children, friends, relatives with an earshot of the gospel at every opportunity. I know you're concerned about your children. I know you're concerned about your friend who does not know Jesus or the gospel. But how concerned are you? What about that spouse that doesn't know Christ? How simple to be faithful to listen to gospel preaching. That's pretty simple. Say, well, my children don't like gospel preaching. They hate church. My husband, my wife will never come to hear gospel preaching. But I'm going to ask again, how simple is that just to listen? 
Let them come. Encourage them to come. Even if they say they don't want to listen. Why, why would you do something like that, Pastor? Because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. There's no magic bullet. The spirit, like the wind, moves when and where he chooses. But he always, he always uses the preached word to slay the wicked and to bring life to the dead. Birth never occurs apart from impregnation with the living seed. So too there is no spiritual birth from above unless the word of God impregnates the stony heart. And it's just logical. The more exposure, the more opportunity the Spirit of God has to convict and to save. Are people saved other ways? I know by reading a track or reading Christian literature or the witness of a friend. Yeah, they are. But the percentages are in the 90s. The people hearing gospel preaching get saved that way. Secondly, we need to learn that God gives a threefold testimony about his son, Jesus Christ. You'll find it in verses 7 and 8. He says, the spirit. Verse 6 says, the spirit is truth. Which makes sense because God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to do so. The Spirit speaks through the written word, which he inspired through human authors. And the Bible claims to be God's word. The engrafe, the writings, were inspired by the Spirit of God. Secondly, there's the water. That's a reference to Jesus' baptism, whereon we have the baptizer's own eyewitness account in John 1, verse 34. The baptizer says, I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down upon and remain in him is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, says John, and I testify that this is the Son of God. John 1, verse 33 and 34. And Matthew's account says that as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well. And then the last chord in this trio, which makes it impossible to break, is the blood. That's the truth of Hebrews 9 and verse 12. That in his high priestly robe, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats. No. Calves. No. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. Animal sacrifices can never take away sin, but the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences 
from acts that lead to death, that's sin, so that we may serve the living God. So that we may serve the living God. Threefold testimony. The spirit, the water, the blood. And not to believe this threefold testimony from God about the truthfulness of the Spirit's witness in the Bible, the divinity of Jesus confirmed in his baptism with God's own voice from heaven, and the sufficiency of his shed blood to cleanse and save with no additional stuff from you and me is to make God out to be a liar. Verse 10. Because, verse 9, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. Folks, unbelief is not a little sin. It's not a little sin. Unbelief, when it comes to God's when it comes to God, will damn your soul. That's a pretty serious sin, don't you think? The destination being the lake of fire forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's not a little consequence. May none here be so willful and so foolish. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May God grant you that faith and that repentance. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for this threefold testimony that you've given concerning your Son. Now you know though we're working with stubborn hearts and unrepentant hearts and ignorant hearts that don't even know the Bible and don't know the gospel and don't know the way of salvation. Even so, as we preach the truth, we ask that you will take the truth which is the sword of the Spirit and slay our rebellion and our ignorance and everything else that keeps us from coming to Christ and closing with him. Help us to stop putting up our defenses, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. There are no yeah, buts. There's only the truth of your word. There's only in the ministry of the Spirit. And all the other things that we put our hope in and trust in, our church attendance, our church offerings, our prayer life, they're nothing without Jesus Christ. If we do these things because we love Christ and we've made our peace with Christ, so be it. But if we're doing these things thinking, uh, we will make some brownie points with God and in the end he'll let us into his paradise. If that's the way we're thinking, there again, forgive us for being so rebellious. Jesus himself put it this way, I alone am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Now we either believe Christ knows what he's saying and has said the truth, or we're still going to rely upon our own conceptions. I pray that you will remove those conceptions from us. The evil one would like us to think as he did with Adam and Eve. Oh no, you will not surely die if you eat of the forbidden fruit. But they ate and they died. God was right. Satan was wrong. So may you work in our hearts today to show us that God is right. And we are wrong. And we need your grace. Forgive us for rebelling against the clear truth of the gospel. Save whom you will. Amen.